Singe, Sange, Zinga. You're listening to Zinga Network at zinganetwork.com. This afternoon, I was walking down Leipziger Straße on my way to the U-Bahn with my friend, the artist and trainer Leslie Moon. Leslie and I try to get together at the gym on Sundays for some strength training, some catching up, and some clearing out for the week ahead. We had just finished our workout and were on our way to the train when we passed a gallery with one of the ugliest sculptures I had ever seen in my life. And by ugly, I don't mean morally ugly. It was just a sculpted chair with some human-shaped legs sculpted to it as well. It didn't seem to make much of a statement of any kind, as far as I could see. It was just plain old ugly. And that raised the question for me, as it often does, who gets to call it art? It's been one of the driving questions of this podcast since I began it five years ago. I know what pisses some people off when I ask it, as though art is not to be challenged or questioned or even explored unless it's within certain academic terminology. Basically, unless you already agree that it, whatever it is, is art. I don't make the rules. But I do question them, especially if it comes from authority with a capital A. It's just my nature to question authority. Why that is, is between me and my therapist. And anyone who shows up to a poetry slam. Welcome to Artipus, art you can hear. Artipus visits, participates, and gets lost in TEDxGeo and the Wrong Biennale in their collaboration, TEDx The Wrong. History, they say, is written by the winners. I think throughout most of human history, that's been pretty true. But things are different today. In today's online, internet, technology faster than the speed of light world, who exactly are the winners? And what are they winning? Is it Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook? Twitter? Google? Amazon? Are they winning money? Data? Souls? Who's writing the future? And who's rewriting history? Who gets to call it innovation, advancement, progress? Who gets to call it art? Back in the 1980s, in the early days of Silicon Valley, a guy named Richard Saul Werman created something called TED, Technology, Entertainment, Design. The TED conferences, or TED Talks as they're known these days, are a series of conferences that feature the world's leading thinkers, innovators, researchers, and designers to share, quote, ideas worth spreading. The talks are available for free online, which seems wonderfully altruistic democratic even. And there have been some truly inspiring TED Talks over its 30-year history. Physicists, academics, artists, researchers, the best and brightest in their fields sharing their most important findings for free in an accessible format with the rest of the world. TED Talks have become a global phenomenon that have influenced culture, education, and even government policy, but more specifically, how? 
how academia, science, and technology is presented. TED conferences were some of the very first formats for infotainment, and TED handpicked the storytellers. Because the source of this knowledge, the research, the data, the conclusions, the influence, all seems to come from the same kind of place. According to Wikipedia, another source of knowledge that seems to come from the same kind of place, TED Talks are funded by a combination of attendance fees, corporate sponsors, and foundation support. In 2006, a ticket to a TED conference cost $4,400 US dollars per person and was by invitation only. In 2018, to be live in the presence of a good idea worth spreading cost $10,000 US dollars per attendee. So, who gets to tell the stories and who gets to call them good ideas? The people who can afford to go to TED Talks and who can shell out 10 grand per ticket plus airfare and lodging and dinners and all the other minor expenses attached to every conference ever. Mostly people in the upper 5% income bracket. Mostly people from Silicon Valley, meaning mostly men, mostly white. And that's cool, if rigid patriarchal structures are your jam. Me, I prefer jelly, because jam don't shake like that. Anyway, a group of artists who prefer to remain anonymous and identify only by their geographical coordinates decided to take a critical look at the TED conference and created something called TEDxGeo. They partnered with the Wrong Biennale, a biannual event that promotes positive, forward-thinking contemporary digital art. The Wrong was created by David Kielis Gio and has been online since 2013 and so far has featured over 3,000 artists worldwide. TEDx The Wrong was conceived as the first ever virtual TED conference, hosted by TEDxGeo as part of the Wrong Biennale 2019. Looking critically at the zeitgeist that has spawned the cultural phenomenon of the TED Talk, TEDx The Wrong offers a new platform for speakers to address themes of truth, authority, and circulation of knowledge in the post-internet age. Drawing speakers from around the world, TEDx The Wrong seeks to decentralize the concept of the TED conference by providing access and visibility to a broader group of speakers and ideas independent of physical location. Contributing artists are invited to submit, quote, talks that subvert the format now widely known as the TED Talk, either by questioning and or parodying the structures of authority in which the TED organization exists and operates. In other words, the Western feel-good pop science meritocracy of advanced neoliberal capitalism, end quote. The Biennale opened on November 1st and will be online until March 1st, 2020. So far, so good. But last week, TEDxGeo sent an email to participants about some unexpected feedback. TED Talk's legal representation in New York asked that the collective disidentify with TED itself. The TEDxGeo artists responded, quote, As TEDx The Wrong was organized to provide a platform for creative projects that look critically at the culture around contemporary authority, privilege, and how information is disseminated online, we feel simultaneously surprised, disappointed, and flattered that TED conferences would take a serious interest in our exhibition, end quote. So punk rock! Anarchy in the URL. 
In September, Artipus was also invited to submit a talk by the organizers of TEDxGO. Our talk also went online on November 1st and is parked alongside some incredible work by artists like Aaron Mitchell, Trashy Muse, Flavia Visconti, Crosslucid, and Tyler Baum, whose piece Crash Course features a simultaneous viewing of all 31 seasons of the painter Bob Ross and about 2,000 more artists. Everything from CGI to lo-fi to video to audio to paintings to manifestos are included here. So, now you know what to do on your Christmas vacation. The Artipus Talk parodies the TED Talk structure most commonly used at TED conferences, based on data gathered from watching approximately 30 hours of the most popular TED Talks from the period 2015 to 2019. It follows what has become a fairly standardized formula, full of self-deprecating humor, humble brags, and reinforcing stereotypical gender roles, ultimately arriving at a Frank Capra-esque conclusion that there was never anything wrong with us in the first place, and wrapping up with a Spielbergian reminder that there are no limits to human imagination. In the end, as Frank Capra and Steven Spielberg both know, it all comes down to a good story. Enjoy! And thank you for coming to my TED Talk. So... Do you guys want to know what my superpower is? I predict trends. Silence. I know. My kids don't believe it either. Silence. They're teenagers. Awkward silence. Twins. Shifting. Johnny and Michelle. IVF twins. No response. My husband, Dirk. And I went through a lot to get these twins. We had been trying for years to get pregnant, which was really fun in the beginning. Chuckling. <laughs> but after a couple of years of just, you know, we opted for IVF. Laughter. <laughs> Thank God for technology, right? <laughs> right? Laughter. Applause. So these beautiful little gifts became my greatest resources because, I know. Giggles. I know. Laughter. I stopped trying to be the cool mom about 10 years ago. I've reached that point, as anyone with kids knows, of acceptance. I know I'm just a middle-aged woman with a practical haircut and comfortable shoes who predicts trends. Shifting. And a couple of years ago, I was doing some research into what trends were trending, and I noticed something strange. I noticed that my predictions, which had been about 60% accurate for the previous 10 years, which is a little better than average rate for trend analysts, were suddenly off by 13%. And for those of you who don't know, 13% is huge. The average is 6 or 7%. So 13% was like, oh my God. No response. How could I be getting it so wrong? And who was getting it right? 
Because it's not like the world had stopped buying trends, not at all. If anything, they were buying more than ever. I even asked my husband, Dirk, like, is it me? Am I getting old? And he was like, um, what is this answer going to cost me? <laughs> Laughter. <laughs> what was getting it right were algorithms. Algorithms used by social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even Google were better at predicting trends than I was. Or, well, let's not say better, but with more accuracy. Now, when Facebook first opened up to the public, I was aware that there were algorithms and how they were being used, but I was like, nah, <laughs> simple coding, simple math, they'll never catch up. Shifting. They'll never be able to predict what brand of jeans will be popular among high-performing secondary school suburban teens, for example, or what pop song is going to get played on constant repeat. Laughter. At all hours. After school. Before school. During dinner. Before bed. After bed. You know what I'm talking about. Knowing laughter. But it turns out I didn't know what I was talking about. I had completely flubbed my prediction about algorithms. I mean, talk about a miscalculation. <laughs> Laughter. Now, an algorithm is just code, right? I think we all understand that by now. It's a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. And the algorithms used by most social media platforms are basically this, only bigger, global. They calculate whether something is trending based on KPIs and keyword frequency, a lot like the way a trend analyst predicts trends, only faster. They operate on quantitative data, so the more people active in the data set, the more accurate the data output. But what they're really doing is recording what's happening in the moment, only what's going on right now. But using this information, if they have simple learning capacity, they can predict what looks like a trend, but is really only popularity in a different time zone. That's okay. That's fine. That's useful for what that kind of data is being collected for. What kind of time management tools people are recommending, for instance. What data is received better when delivered by a man or a woman. Which celebrities are hot, where revolutions are happening. What wellness remedy people believe is the most effective right now. Right? We've all used it for that. But I wanted to know about qualitative data, the true predictor of a trend. What tools do the algorithms use to predict trends as opposed to what we, my colleagues in the field and I, have been using for the past 40, 50 years? Shifting, stifled yawns. Because, and do you remember this? At some point, the algorithm started screwing up. Remember? A driverless car made a miscalculation and someone was killed. A political journalist who posted an example of the death threats they receive was sent the same post suggesting it would make a good ad. Uncomfortable <laughs> laughter. Seriously. This post is performing better than most. Consider reaching more people with a... <laughs> Relieved laughter. Right? We could call it human error, but... 
So my colleagues and I decided to do a little experiment. We wanted to know if we could create an algorithm that would beat the algorithm. We wanted to beat the machine, but we also only wanted to use three ingredients. KPIs are simple to understand, just click rate, right? Everyone here knows what click rate is. It's like how many likes something gets and how many times those likes lead to more activity. Shifting. And of course, y'all know what keywords are. I've been using keywords to help me gather data for years. In fact, I'm using keywords in this talk right now because I know they'll go into the transcript and result higher on Google searches. <laughs> Laughter, applause. And then we added a third, a kind of old school factor because, you know, we're hip Gen Xers. As Dirk and I like to remind our twins, we invented old school. Yeah. Laughter. Anyway, the third measuring tool? I'm serious. A laughometer. Silence. Really, I'm not kidding. No response. We threw that into the mix and then took it out on the road, so to speak. Coded it into a bot that kind of crawled the internet, focused on trending topics and looking for voice activation and response users. Silence. But also keywords and emojis like LOL and this guy. The so funny I'm crying emoji. <laughs> You've used it. Don't act like you haven't. Laughter. I like to send that one to my kids when they ask for an advance in their life. Laughter. <laughs> After nine months of collecting data, we deactivated our bot. It was time to see the results. And I was so nervous. I said to Dirk, honey, you look at it. Light laughter. He was like, laughing, crying emoji. <laughs> laughter. I felt like my entire future rested on the results of this data, and I was expecting to learn that our data would still underperform the, algorith the algorithms with a capital A. So when I looked at the data again, and remember, I'm someone who loves data. I've built a whole career on it. I mean, my husband sometimes says, I love data more than him. And he's right. <laughs> Don't tell him. Knowing laughter. But when I looked at the new data... It's like I saw God. Revered silence. I couldn't believe it. I remember I was in my office and I kind of elbowed my colleague and was like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And he was like, yep, data don't lie. We had outperformed the algorithms in speed, accuracy, and qualitative measurements. We were reading humans, and we beat the machine. I mean, it was kind of a joke, you know, but it turns out the laughometer was the secret ingredient to measuring qualitative responses. Gasps, shifting. And I left that office that night feeling like I had gone back to the future, you know? Relieved laughter. You know what I mean? Do you ever have those moments? And I got home, and I walked in the door, and... My husband saw the look on my face and was like, honey, are you okay? And I was like, oh my God. And I turned to Dirk and said, so what if all this innovation, improvement, drive, what if we're fine just as we are? Murmurs. 
What if there was never anything wrong with us to begin with? It's like we're creating problems for our products to solve instead of the other way around. What if we're doing it all wrong? What if we've been doing it all wrong? Excited shifting. And he thought about it. And he said, I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is those imperfections, the mistakes, that's what makes us human. That's what makes us, us. Applause. I feel like you guys know everything about me now. My mistakes, my twins, my husband. Intimate chuckling. But what you don't know about me is this. I'm not really here. My body, my corporeal being is actually at home with my husband and my two teenagers, Jenny and Michael. We're probably watching TV or shopping on Amazon. Laughter. You think I'm kidding? I love Amazon. Laughter. Applause. So what you see before you is a hologram. I am the algorithm. I've been using keywords, facial recognition, and the laughometer to deliver exactly what you want to hear. And like the algorithm, this body has no boundaries. The only real boundary left is our imagination. And that is a trend I don't need to predict because it never goes out of style. Thank you. Standing ovation. There's so much great work that's part of the Wrong Biennale in TEDxGeo and is perfect for browsing through on a dark winter afternoon. Works can be visited in pavilions, virtual curated spaces in any accessible online media where selected artworks are exhibited, in embassies made up of physical institutions, art spaces, galleries, and artist-run spaces in cities around the world, and beyond. In other words, dedicated routers developed to display digital art to everyone nearby with a smartphone or tablet via Wi-Fi. Check out all the innovative high and low culture works on offer online, offline, and all around at thewrong.org and wrongxted.com. Open now through March 1st, 2020. Music heard in this episode is the original track titled The Verge by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his music at josephmcdade.com. If you'd like to listen to previous seasons of Artipus and support the show, visit artipus.com. That's A-R-T-I-P-O-E-U-S dot com. And click on the donate button. Your help helps us create more art you can hear. I'm Susie Colick, and you've been listening to Artipus, art you can hear. 
Artipus is produced in Berlin for Zynga Network. And you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify under Zynga Network. Just search for S-I-N-G-E Network. Artipus is also broadcast in France exclusively on World Radio Paris. WRP on your DAB dial. I'm Susie Colick, and you've been listening to Artipus, art you can hear. You've been listening to Artipus, produced and edited in Berlin by Susie Colick, with original theme music by Hotlegs for the Zynga Network. S-I-N-G-E-Network.com. <laughs>